Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host, And today our guest is Benjamin Lehman. Benjamin is a a life coach, a writer who helps people better understand themselves, their motivations, their blind spots with the hope of recovering their primitive and provocative authenticity. They are also the director of the Mind, Body, Soul Wellness brand, All Points North, a behavioral health provider dedicated to destigmatizing mental health and providing new front doors to wellness. Benjamin is going to share his own story of recovery and the tragic story of his mother's suicide and all the history behind that. He's going to share that with us and the growth that he got going through that experience. And we're going to talk about a lot of stuff today. We're going to talk about shame, spiritual composting, codependence, and how the worst thing that can happen to us can be our superpower. And we're also going to talk about gender identity and the unique role of sexual orientation, queer identity as it plays in addiction treatment. So we're going to talk about a lot of stuff. I think you're going to enjoy this episode. So stay tuned. And if you're enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes. It really does help the podcast get found. And I really appreciate it. And I love reading the reviews. It fills my heart with a lot of joy. Keeps me motivated. And check us out on Instagram at Addicted Mind Podcast. All right, let's go ahead and start this episode. All right, everybody, welcome to the Addicted Mind Podcast. I've got Benjamin Leland with me, and we're going to talk about shame, cancel culture, spiritual composting, codependence, multiple personalities we all have inside us and how the worst thing can become our superpower, gender identity, the unique role of sexual orientation, queer identity, and all that plays in addiction. So we got a lot to talk about, Benjamin. Yeah, so sounds like it. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's just jump in and, and hear a little bit of like your story and and we'll go from there. Sure. I mean, you know, I think stories, especially within the world of recovery, kind of split into like two or three parts, right? There's like the before, you know, the kind of like yeah. leading up to boiling point, And then there's the 
crisis moment where it all comes tumbling down and you realize the change is not just necessary, but like, you know, essential. And then you have that period after you've gotten sober where all of a sudden you come back online and you hopefully awaken to not just living life, but like thriving in life. Right. Um, right. My story begins in England, as you might be able to tell from my accent. And, you know, I mean, like pretty middle to middle upper class family had everything I needed. Certainly had everything I wanted. Definitely, you know, had a silver spoon in my mouth, access to great education. Family life wasn't ideal. You know, mom and dad split. And, you know, mom spent a lot of time in and out of treatment herself for mental health issues. I was growing up with my own sort of like queer identity, which could not really come out to play or find any level of acceptance. Not because I wouldn't have been able to be accepted in that family. There was no religious related sort of like, you know, bias or or prejudice. But with my mum's sort of mental health issues and my largely being the one right. that was living with her, my entire life became was dedicated to emotionally regulating her. And as happens with codependent kind of enmeshed relationships and trauma and all that stuff, you kind of don't really have an identity separate from that person. And so I never felt safe really to be who I was. That yeah. obviously isn't healthy, right? I mean, it's, you know, that part of you that is getting stuffed down and frozen, you know, essentially comes out in other ways. And I started doing drugs, smoking weed, you know, drinking alcohol, stealing into the cabinet to, uh, at night with friends over. But that turned to cocaine and... You know, over the years, that became a pretty stable part of my day-to-day -day living. I mean, manageable insofar as manageability is concerned. Right. But, you know, like my entire get down was be the smartest person in the room. Like, you know, like the identity that I did get to develop was like, do really well at school. No one needs to pay attention to you. Like, you'll just be chugging away over there and, you know, like you don't need any unnecessary attention. So I managed to do really well, go to great university, get a great job. But, you know, I got married to a woman in line with the kind of idea of building the white picket fence around my secret life and hoping that I wouldn't have to ever deal with it. Right. And then in 2014, my mom uh, committed suicide because she kind of got thrust into center stage with the media shitstorm that you know she got herself into trouble essentially for some stuff she was doing on twitter and that was the beginning of the end so yeah you know when i was researching you uh before you came on the podcast to kind of just understand your story and listen to it i was there there's there's a lot of tragedy there a lot of hurt a lot of pain and if you feel okay about it can you share a little bit of that so people have context because i think that's so important because also hearing i know some of your story from from doing that you know coming out the other side of that and being able to find yourself because of these hard things yeah you know <laughs> it's the worst thing that that could have happened right i can't think i mean there's obviously lots of different types of tragedies but you know, my mom was engaging in some behavior on Twitter, trolling essentially by any other word, uh, because she got this like serious obsession, this interest 
with this missing girl case in Europe, Madeleine McCann. And I think in many ways she kind of identified with this girl because of her own tragedy and trauma. And, you know, she kind of like felt like she was standing up for this, this girl yeah. was kind of standing up for herself in many ways, but it led her to sort of like say some pretty harassing things online. And eventually the chickens came home to roost when her identity got leaked and the press went to town like they want to do. And like, since that moment they've been doing in ever escalating ways to cancel people. Right. Right. To feed on the kind of remains of these characters that they kind of like publicly vilify. So that caused me to deal with all of this media attention that was just highly negative and deeply upsetting. But at the same time, it fed into this very conflicted sense that I had that like my mum was amazing and I love her and I wouldn't, I'd give anything to have her back. But she also like was a huge burden to my soul, to myself, um, was kind of a shadow that I that I just was difficult to really ever get out from underneath. And so when she got into trouble and, you know, like it, there was a part of me that was like, had a sense of like, you see, like, you know, like I'm not always the one that's doing wrong. You know, there was a certain level of like satisfaction that I, I derived from knowing that like, now you know how it feels to have like somebody tell you that you fucked up. But of course, like it, it ended in an incredibly tragic way and I lost her. But losing her sent me down such a dark, dark rabbit hole. And at this time you were already, it sounds like drugs, alcohol, substances were, were your way of coping. And yeah. then here's this this event, this dark place that just sucks you in because of this tragedy. Yeah. I mean, it's like a black hole, like in its truest sense that there's this like huge anti-gravity kind of like event that happens that just sucks everything into it, that nothing positive can exist in that space. And so cocaine and alcohol turned into methamphetamine and that really took me to the darkest place. I mean, you like you hear the stories and everyone that's done meth seems to have these same stories of these sort of shadows climbing the walls and this FBI cabal that's hiding in the bushes or at the end of the corridor. And it's a very lonely, very devastating and scary space to be in. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's all engulfing, all consuming. Yeah. You know, and then there's also this part, you know, that I find I, a lot of people who get sober you know, who kind of veer towards creativity and artistry, you have this crazy, really perverted sense that like you need to be in the darkness in order to be creative. That it was like you make your bed with this really unfair world, the way you perceive it, right? And you just see that like, well, this is my cross to bear. Although so when there's you look almost back this yeah, the secondary game from that too, when you're yeah. connecting with that part, that story, that mythology, that this is this is how we're supposed to be. So so how how did you, you know, going through our kind of parts of the story, right? How did you find your way out of all of this and how did you start to shift that or change that? I mean, I can only describe it as as a moment of grace. There's absolutely no reason 
why it happened the way it did when it did. I'd been on some kind of seven-day methamphetamine binge. Bear in mind, while also working as the head of marketing for a company, somehow managing All to just keep it together, right? And that's one of those things about like high-functioning kind of addiction is that like you still manage to keep it together. And it's like you keep you keep com- pushing forward with all of this stuff, and it would be easier if you were less high functioning, so that you could just fall apart quicker. But you don't, because it's the only thing you have. And so this binge is going on, and I'm driving home from work, barely keeping my car on the road, like you know, just kind of fading in and out of you know whatever consciousness was there. And I get back home, and I all I know is. The usual routine of stopping at the liquor store, texting the dealer to time my arrival back at home to get the drugs, to walk in through the front door, and to lava, rinse, repeat. I just knew that if I did that, there was no coming back. And so instead, I just, I marched up and down the streets, and I didn't know what was happening. And I just remembered one thing, which is that there was this woman who told me to go to a meeting. I couldn't remember her name. And I just scrolled through the phone. As you know, we never delete contacts. Right. Anymore. There's thousands of them there. And finally, her name appears. And I'm like, that's her. And I call her and I say, hey, like, I need help. And she's like, okay, like, meet me tomorrow at this time, 7.15 a.m. at the log cabin, which is a very sort of well-known meeting in Los Angeles. And, you know, it's like, if you, if you want to get sober, like meet me there. And like, do you want to get sober? And I was like, that thing we have, right. Where it's like right now. Yeah. But tomorrow when like, the hangover comes in and it, the hangovers arrive, like this loan shark with a baseball bat, you know? And it's like, I know that I'll just pick up again, but for whatever reason, I was like, yeah. And I kind of stayed largely awake all night kind of like a first world war soldier expecting to go over the top of the trenches in the morning. And I got in the car and I drove to the log cabin and I've been sober ever since. Wow. There was that, just that moment, like you said, that moment of grace where, and there yeah. was someone else there for you. Yeah. Yeah. God, and, you know, God knows. Cause you know, but having the trust issues that, that many of us have, it's like, who, why the hell does this person care? Why is she getting an Uber at seven fifteen? Like, you know, do I really deserve that? Yeah. You know? So let's talk about a, a little bit of like moving through all of this to that point of maybe having to, you know, you talk about spiritual composting, like having to do that work as you move through all of these things in your life. So spiritual composting is this kind of cute little phrase that I've come up with. All of us, I think, in recovery at some point comes to the conclusion that this doesn't need to have all been in vain and that actually in some way the very worst experiences, the most terrible of terrible things and stories that we have to tell, the moments that we were absolutely at our worst can be turned into something beneficial, right? We learned that like we can only stay sober by giving away the things that were so freely given to us. And it's like alchemy. You take these base materials and you turn them into gold. So composting, spiritual composting is 
all of this rotten matter, all of this vegetable, fruit, all of this shit, if you just leave it for a while, it turns into compost, which is nutrient-rich and fertile, and it's where the flowers grow. And I found that my experience with drugs and alcohol, my experience with suicide, parlayed into my ability to volunteer with the Trevor Project and take calls from queer kids who were struggling and co contemplating suicide. It, it turned into my ability to become a coach and help other people you know, with, with things that have come up for them that have challenged their very existence. Yeah. It, it, talk more about that, especially for people in the, in the queer community and, and addiction treatment and, and getting help and, and, and some of the unique problems that people in the LGBTQ plus community face when dealing with addiction, dealing with trauma and dealing with a culture that in many places you know, are attacking them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, like that's an invitation to, to quite a serious soapbox for me. Yeah. You know, I mean, look, here's the deal. All of this legislative stuff that's going on right now around drag and the trans community and access to health, you know, and all of the other stuff that's going on for women around, you know, abortion and access to, you know, to the, the to choice over one's body is, so unbecoming of, of a country that claims to be leading the world in terms of freedom and democracy and personal liberty and equality. So, I mean, I, I'm just going to leave that to one side because it's just, sure. it's atrocious, but it doesn't speak to the individual issues that, although it does aggravate them from a mental health perspective of feeling like you're not accepted, but like there's such unbelievably unique issues that face the LGBTQ plus population, especially when it comes to addiction and mental health, because you know, the queer identity often becomes more about the sort of sexual behavior that we get up to. You know, essentially you're asking someone when they come out, oftentimes maybe at a young age, to essentially paint a target on like what they do with their genitalia. You right. know, like straight people don't have to have this, this rite of passage. And I think that it's also like what happens is that people who are dealing with their sexuality being non-heteronormative is that there's this like over-focus on that part of them. Sometimes it's pushed down and it has to become this secretive part of them. It takes up such a huge amount of mental bandwidth, even if you're in an accepting world, trying to work out where you belong and who do you look to as a role model. And when you look at role models, you see these like Sex in the City style, RuPaul, it's all flamboyant, it's all over the top, it's all about this pride that had to be formed in con like in contradistinction to a, a culture which was designed not to accept it. So it's very in your face. And there's a part of you, I think, that gets frozen when you're going through that at a young age. When all of these other kids are going to house parties and making out with members of the opposite sex on couches and you're sitting there going, I can't do that, you get this Peter Pan syndrome and like anyone in addiction knows that there's a part of them that stopped growing at some point, that there's some immature part right. of them that turned to drugs and alcohol to cope. And you add to that being in the LGBTQ plus community and it's just a compounding effect of all of that. It's like you were saying earlier, this one piece that the like what you're doing with your genitalia is what everybody focuses on. Yet there's this whole humanity piece that gets 
missed, like the humanity of, of, of your personhood. Yeah. And that's like a whole nother thing to, to deal with. And then you're getting all of these other messages that you're not accepted. You shouldn't be here. This is wrong or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's all, all of the things that go into that identity are like, there's so much trauma. There's so much shame going on there. I don't know that there's anyone, I don't know that straight people think anywhere near as often during the day, am I straight? Am I not straight? Like what does straight mean? But the queer people are, are constantly having to like renew their identity and ask themselves, what does it mean? And oftentimes in the queer community, that comes down to like, when was the last time I had sex? There's this drug culture that comes up in the queer community of the meth, and the GHB and like the all of that chemsex stuff, which has a lot to do as well with like the disinhibition. Like, how do I feel comfortable having sex, knowing that there's all of this part of me which still feels like some part of it is wrong? You know, right. it's, it's sometimes having sex as as a gay person almost feels like you're like you're like you're having a cheat day on your diet. There's just you know there's this like oh I just like overindulged in chocolate or fast food. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it, it, I mean, it's, it's like the internalized homophobia that you're, you're wrestling with yourself. And, and I, I just imagine that that's, that's just so painful and adds more to that pain of, of maybe feeling like you have to hide it or you, you have to, you can't, you can't be yourself. It's either having to hide it, but then once you're out of the closet, it's like being expected to rightly and wrongly participate in this kind of pride culture, which is all about like saying, I don't care how you think about me. I'm going to wear this. It feels good to me. It's aligned with my identity. Like I'm going to be the person I am. But that pride stuff, it's an overcompensation. It's a necessary political overcompensation to try and say to society, I don't care if you don't accept me. But what that does mean is that sometimes we get caught up in this terminal velocity of like having to be in your face and saying, you don't bug me. I am who I am. But there's still this part of you going like, I'm scared. And like, I don't feel comfortable. Yeah. And how going through your life and your addiction, how, how did this, if you don't mind sharing, how did this play out for you having to kind of work through all these pieces? A lot of therapy. A lot of therapy. Yeah. You know, I mean, but like for me, like I found role models within the gay community, uh, friends who I could look to for sort of rounding out my personality and my identity and like get, getting access to like the intimacy, which can be so lacking, at least in my experience within within the male gay community, which is the only place I can speak knowledgeably about having a therapist who, who was a gay male as well. And like finding that, you know, finding that kind of peace and exploring those parts of my identity and doing it in the safe, vulnerable place, knowing I was speaking to someone who'd been through it as well, but also in therapy more recently, getting involved in like IFS inter internal family systems therapy and yeah. befriending all of these parts of me. Cause this is the thing that it's only in relative recent history that it's become more accepted to talk about the voices, right? And I'm not talking about like schizophrenic, yeah, auditory hallucinations. I'm talking about like 
the voice that says in the morning when you wake up, what are you even bothering doing getting out of bed? Like, you're a piece of shit. Or like when you start writing, really? You think you're going to write a book? You know, right, all of right, those yeah. internal personalities, this ecumenical council that is like, all exists to try and protect us even if it feels and sent like seems hostile but it's like befriending those parts of my personality and understanding that it's it, there's a beautiful unity in it that we all have like pieces of our personality that we yeah absolutely like we we can talk with ourselves we can have a relationship with all these different parts of ourselves and that helps us look at all, all the pieces of ourselves, uh, maybe the stuff we like, maybe the, the stuff we don't like or you know, we don't want to look at, but we, we need to. And I think that's the big thing for me is that like, you know, it's like a puzzle, right? Like an actual physical puzzle is that, you know, you start generally, unless you're like a masochist with the, ra- with the you know, the corners, right? And all of the square edges. And like when you're getting sober, you know, you start out with what it maybe is the 12 steps. And then you start out like trying to work out what, are, what is my value system? Like, what do I stand for? And then you start moving into the more complicated pieces, but you've got the structure there, the routines to kind of dig in. And a big part of all of that was especially helped by the 12 steps, you know, but other ways, there are other ways of doing it too, is like, Looking at those things that seem shameful, upsetting, kind of like, you know, when you hear women talk about how they drove drunk and high with kids in the car, this stuff we've all done, like, we are animals at at heart. We like, we have a long philosophical and religious tradition that will try to, to, to remind us that we're like souls, light creatures, beings, and that's true, but we're also pissing, pooping, fucking animals that like you know nietzsche kind of comes in to remind us is that like there's like this this dark aspect of our personality carl gustav jung who deeply informed the 12 steps that it's like until we can own our shadow we are failing to do to integrate our entire humanity and that can be very hard in the modern age where there is this idealized golden standard of comparison uh, created by like social media where everyone's like, yay, I'm living my best life. And it's impossible to live up to that. We, I, we all think I'm the only one that's depraved, disgusting, and, and immoral. And right. it's only a matter of time before they work it out. But the truth is, everyone's done shit that's dark. Everyone's thought things which are very improper. And I feel like if we could all just break bread over that, yeah. we might get to something. I think I definitely agree with you. If we can, we can all look at our humanity. I love Carl Jung's work. I think I was listening to another podcast you were on and talking about Joseph Campbell's work of you know look, looking through myth and seeing our journey kind of laid out in front of us. But being able to see that also gives us that that grace too. Like you said, I think it makes grace easier. Yeah. I think that like, if there isn't a crisis point, if there isn't discomfort, if there isn't resistance, then I'm not sure what exactly one can expect in terms of growth. I mean, you look at Joseph Campbell, you have to have the nadir. The hero has to have a point of where it feels like there's the, there's no coming back. 
you know, yeah. other, and then you come back and the lessons have been learned from that thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's, that's true as well. So that means that's where our, the tragedies will appear for us that we have to, we have to face the, the dark things that come into our life and we're faced with this decision. Yeah. There's no good and bad as much as there is just like useful and, you know, useless. I think it's ultimately like all of this journey is about a non-linear, like winding, winding roads towards self-actualization. And until sometimes you destroy something, you know, like it's impossible for it to, you know, for it to actually like, you have to rebuild things grow back stronger at the broken places. Yeah, absolutely. What about the importance of like doing this? And like you said, breaking bread over all of this, telling your story and the importance for you of, of doing that and telling the story to people so that people can hear what you've been through. I mean, I think the terrible stories are the things, the ones that we have to tell, right? You know, I think my personal platform or my personal sort of like skill is that I, like, I definitely do care what people think of me to a certain extent, like when I know them more than when I don't, you know what I right, mean? Like, yeah, absolutely. When I know people, I'm like, it's completely like in the pocket of what you what your perception of me is if i don't know you i don't give a rat's ass and i have been very strident and open about things that i have done in my life sexual curiosity of a queer boy growing up experimenting like the ways in which my mental health issues like played out like i'm laying all my cards on the table in a very, very frank and unlike arguably, you know, inappropriate people might say way, because I've had the experience of doing that and having people reach out to me and saying, I didn't think I could ever talk to anyone about this thing I'm about to tell you. And here it goes. Yeah. And, and I, and it goes to, I, I love your website domain, provocatively authentic. <laughs> and I think that goes into into that. So tell me a little bit about that too, and what those two words mean together for you. Authenticity is a word that I lived with for a very long time. I was that little precocious queer kid walking around school while everyone else was playing soccer, and I'm like clutching my copy of Albert Camus and Jean Paul Sartre. And authenticity is a big part of that whole existentialist movement. And yet, it's funny that like for up until i got sober like my idea of authenticity was just being i mean as having a secret life and just being a provocateur who like always played the devil's advocate always to the other side just to be argumentative and just to be kind of unruly and i thought that that was me that was my authenticity but my experience in sobriety has shown me that like that there's more to authenticity than that obviously and that there's like my value system and my gender identity and my sexuality and my relationship with the universe and other people around me. And I feel like I'm now living authentically. And my goal with what I do, my life coaching, my transformation coaching is to help other people reclaim that part of them that is authentic and to do it in such a charismatic, exciting way that it's impossible for that example not to want 
like to make other people want to to follow suit you know i think it's like people in recovery it's like osmosis right that it's like you create this glow attraction not promotion that just naturally brings people you know attracts people to whatever it is that you did to achieve that type of change and that type of internal you know kind of radiance there's something like uh you know when i talk to people and and do this work you you can sense that change in somebody i i don't know i can sense it when people are i want to say this comfortable enough in their own skin i don't know if that makes sense you know and and you can see that it's it's it is this this change that happens that people before maybe it's I don't know, we're hiding from ourselves, we're, we're, we're lost in this pit, like you described it. And then we come out to this other side where we can be ourselves, we can be who we are. And, and it feels okay. I don't know if that, if that makes sense. <laughs> I mean, it's the most beautiful thing in the world to see when the lights come on with someone else, you know, and like, and also to remind yeah. them, because like, you know, when you're when you're when you're hanging out with these people that are early on in their recovery, like, and there's this moment where the skin goes from ashen gray to like flush pink, right? Going up to them and saying like, "Hey," because they're the last. You're always the last to notice the change in you, right? Yep. And to you know to to remind them that that's happening for them, and. And, you know, to listen for like the things that they say, like I'm going for a job interview in a couple of days and I'm really nervous and putting that in your phone and like calendar reminding it so you can reach out to them and then just like stay abreast of those things that are happening for them. Because I needed so much encouragement to transform. It doesn't happen. It takes a village. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. Absolutely. And, and you know, you're, I'm, I'm thinking about your story where you're on your phone and you're reaching out to that person to say, I need help. And I imagine that person you reached out to had done some of this work. And that's probably why you reached out to them. And then why people now reach out to you is because because of that process. Yeah. I mean, I, I think unless you live it and breathe it, and constantly are, are open-minded and curious enough to grow. Like you can't be of any use to anyone else or of any use to yourself. Yeah. And there's this desire to give it away. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the beautiful thing about the chemical makeup of the body is that like it, we have this rich reward system that like we used to like rely on these like dopamine hits, like from drugs and alcohol and then we move into this glorious new phase of our life where the chemical that's getting released is oxytocin, which is the thing that comes from interpersonal service and, and helping and building people up. It's just a much more ripe, effective chemical situation, the new addiction service. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Benjamin, I just thought I'd like, Thank you. We're kind of running on our time here, but I, I want to just thank you for coming on and, and sharing a little bit of your story. Before we go, I always like to ask one question uh, of my guests, and that's um, if someone is out there struggling, maybe they're having a, a hard time, what would you want to tell them? What would you want to say? I mean, that's a, that's a pretty, it's a pretty uh, broad sort of picture of the person needing help, but it's okay to ask for help. Like, saying I need help 
and not not and not having it to do it on your own is that's the bravest thing you can do is say i need help and i don't know the answer but we we live in a society which makes you think that you have to do you have to do it on your own you have to work it out and you can't you, you need you need others yeah or what i guess what i'd say to that person would be call me awesome i love it where where can people find you if they want to hear more of your story and hear more about you which i encourage them to do um where can they find you so um people can go to instagram at benjamin underscore leyland there's also the website provocativelyauthentic.com which you can also get to by just typing in benjaminleyland.com awesome thank you benjamin so much for coming on to the addicted mind podcast i appreciate it thank you Dwayne. i appreciate it too All right, everyone, thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. As usual, all the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com, so you can check out all the links there. And don't forget, if you've enjoyed this episode, click the subscribe button or share the episode with a friend. And check us out on Instagram at the Addicted Mind podcast. All right, everyone, have a wonderful day, and I will talk to you on the next episode. It's Erin. And I'm Michaela, and we're the hosts of the Two Sober Girls podcast, and we are on a mission to spill the wild truth about sobriety. Forget the rosé all day cliche. Sobriety is flipping amazing. Absolutely. It's not just about quitting the drink. It's a gift you give yourself and your loved ones. So what are you waiting for? Break up with that old toxic relationship with alcohol and let us show you the possibilities. And here's the thing. Everything your precious heart desires becomes way easier without the influence of alcohol. We're not just two sober girls. We're also wellness coaches. We're here to show you how to optimize health, lifestyle, and beauty, feel sexy and alive as F. So stay tuned because we're rolling out new episodes every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts and trust us. They have your name written all over them. We can't wait to share the magic of sobriety and wellness with you. Subscribe to Two Sober Girls Podcast today and come follow us on Instagram for behind the scenes action and send us a DM. We can't wait to meet you.